Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today is the final episode in our series about the Oscars, and I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. The last category we're going to cover from a Below the Line perspective is costume design, and my guest today is Allison J. Brown. Allison, you're a set costumer whose recent credits include American Horror Story and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you for having me. Allison, glad you're here. In parallel to your work as a set costumer, I know you also have a significant number of credits as a costume designer, although they appear to be independent rather than studio projects. Uh, yeah, I bounced around a lot. I started in New York doing costume design for theater and then doing fashion design for like Vera Wang and Calvin Klein. And then eventually made my way back to um, LA to live and just kind of like get back into designing, but then realize, you know, in order to get to the union, I kind of had to start my way bottom to the top again. So set costume design, uh, trailer costumer, um, key costumer, um, assistant costume designer, and, you know, bounced around a lot. It's, you know, I never PA, but I think it's really important to kind of work your way up again. So, yeah. What's interesting, with your perspective up and down the ladder, tell me a little more about how the wardrobe department is structured on a movie or TV show. Um, it really depends on how big the budget is. You could have a team that's like four people. You could have a team that's 40 people. On my last couple shows, the budgets were pretty large. So we're doing a lot of like double units and, you know, six day weeks. Um, so our team was pretty significant. Um, so usually you start with a costume designer. Sometimes you can have two costume designers. Then you have assistant costume designer that reports to the costume designer. And they mainly like oversee all of the design aspects of the film or television show. And primarily the principal, like characters. So all the ma main like lead men and women. And then after that, you have the costume supervisor. And they're in charge of the breakdown and the budgets and the money end of things and like logistical part. And New York and LA are different. So the costume coordinator is in New York and they brought them to LA. So now the costume coordinator is helping the supervisor do like a lot of the money aspects of it. And so the supervisor can like just focus on the breakdowns. And then under the supervisor, there are key customers and you can have multiple key customers. Like right now I'm, I'm a key customer on a, a sitcom right now. And key customers oversee other customers and they could do the day players which are the actors and actresses that say they only come in for like a little part of the episode um you could do all the background you know if it's period background you could have hundreds of people on set and you could be in charge of all the fittings and you're, you're pulling all the shoes and all the dresses and or say you're, you're doing all the cops you're doing all the uniforms um, so key costumers can do that they don't touch principal costumes as much because that's usually assistant costume designers and then under key costumers, you could also be like a key set costumer. So it's kind of like a, I'm not going to say a tie, but there's like a kind of a gray ground between like set costumers who are only on the set. So once the costume designer does the fittings and like approves the design, they bring the clothes to the trailer and then the trailer costumers put the costumes in the trailers of the, of the actors. And then they wear them to set and the set costumers are in charge of all the continuity. So they work with the assistant directors and the directors and, you know, coordinate, you know, if there's a gag with blood, like how much blood you want in the costume, or if there's a car accident, like how big the tear and the, the dresses, et cetera. 
And then because everyone shoots out of order based on like location and money and timing with people's schedules, um, never, things aren't like shot in order. So that's a set costumer. And then the trailer costumer is in charge of all the costumes on the trailer. And all of this is very specific to LA because LA runs differently than New York. And that's like a whole other hierarchy. And then there's customers who say, you know, just only shop or customers that only do the fittings or customers that um, just return clothes, things like that. And then you have seamstresses and tailors and they build all the costumes. They do all the fittings. Um, they make sure everything fits right. And that's like a lot of made to order things. And um, you also have PAs and PAs are production assistants for costume departments. They're in charge of really important things in our department that like not everyone has time for. So a lot of like the intake of the shopping or, you know, driving around doing errands, um, picking up the returns. Um, and within all these categories of these customers, you have different amounts of people. Like you could have five seamstresses, you could have one seamstress, you could have one set customer, you could have five, you could have 10. Um, so that's why the range of department, it's like you could have five people in the department or you could have like 50. And every day to day is different depending on how big the budget is and the time constraints, you know, if you have to shoot it in a small amount of time, you just have to have double units going and, you know, there's double the costume team, each unit going, you know, same amount of set people, same amount of trailer people. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the makeup. I'd say like as small as three to like, you know, 40 people in a costume department. Well, and if everyone has done their job, then, all of that effort is invisible to what actually shows up on screen, but it's very clear from what you're saying and how it breaks down that is a critical aspect of getting it from design to camera uh, mm -hmm. day in and day out to actually bring the film together. Oh, it's, it's so crazy. And I kind of liked coming from like the indie world because I think if you know how to do, if you know how to see like the bigger picture, then you understand what everyone's role is and that's why i always love to do every single role in the costume department because then i can like immediately see like oh you need to be doing that or i can help someone assist like oh this is like an easier way to do things it's just important to see like the bigger picture because sometimes if you get too focused on one thing if you're just starting to learn you're never going to be able to grow or understand like the bigger idea and like you may be doing one like one thing but you have to do that in a small amount of time in order to finish the rest of the day you know so Allison, clearly it, it, it takes a village, as they say, to bring costumes from the design all the way to the screen. Do you feel that when people are looking for the Oscar nominees, and it is the designer who is the recognized person, do you think that they are being recognized for all of this effort that goes into bringing it to screen? Or do you think people isolate the designs themselves when they're making a decision about what should be best costume design for the year? I think it's probably a little bit of both. You know, I think a lot of the people that are voting aren't necessarily in the costume design world, but I think whatever like strikes you. I heard a costume designer once say, if you don't think about the costume design, then it was successful because it was seamless. It wasn't fake. It wasn't fantasy. You were, you were in the moment. You, you believed everything. You believed that they were those people and those clothes were theirs. So it's a little bit of both because you don't want the costumes to just be distracting, but you also want them to be strong because in all of these nominees, I actually really enjoyed all of the costumes um, because I thought that they were either a really believable 
and as a whole, they just were like successful and the color and the characters, everything just came to life. They were, they could, they were wearing the clothes, the clothes weren't wearing them. But also you were saying, is it like a single piece or things like that? For instance, in the Joker, uh, I mean, Mark Bridges is like just genius and I love his work and I think he's a really brilliant designer. And I loved, loved, loved the Joker's suit. I loved the colors. I loved the choice. Um, you know, that's such a sad, sad film. And everything just was so like loved in terms of like the shirts and the textures and the prints and the sweat stains and nothing seemed like you could just buy it. it they were just so special to each person and like, you know, the wrinkled collars and like everything was so thought out. Well, so let's break with precedent and we can do these out of order. So tell me more about the Joker, what you thought overall. You've spoken specifically about the Joker outfit. Talk to me about its nomination for costume design overall. I think it's a really strong candidate. Um, you know, Gotham City is a world of its own. It's so dark. It's so depressing. And like these moments of color. And I think I think when you can marry production design with costume design and create like a separate world, um, I got completely lost in it. And I, I saw this one in theater. Some of these I saw screeners of, but you know, it, it's just, you can tell they made a lot of things from scratch. Someone like went downtown, picked out the fabrics, picked out the buttons. And it, you can just tell, I mean, you, I think you can just tell that they're just these original beautiful pieces. Yeah, I, I loved, loved the costumes in that movie. And it's an interesting point that the costume designer is not just designing the costumes on our principles, but has to worry about wardrobe for all of the background and everything that sort of adds up to that feeling of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I worked with some costume designers that want to prove down to like the shoes of the waiter. And then I've worked with other costume designers that, you know, only the, the key or the background customers are doing that job. Um, and you might get approval on like the masses. They might do like a long lineup, but the costume designer is not handpicking everything. There should be people to dress, but they will do like the overall boards and the moods of like, for instance, that feature. And they'll like kind of dictate like, you know, like this is the color story for Gotham city. Like, you know, I'm sure like at nighttime and, and the hospital scenes are this and et cetera. So um, they, they pick like the overall mood and then everyone just kind of like, has to jump on board and make sure they follow that vision. Now you said you knew Mark Bridges, uh, and so you've worked with him before, or are you just familiar with his work? I'm more familiar with his work. I've worked with him only briefly on a commercial before, but I just know that he, from my, you know, my brief interactions, just doing a commercial with him, he just really thinks a lot about it and wants, he wants each character to seem believable. Like, what would they wear? Like, who are they? And sometimes I know with like bigger features and, you know, actors, they might also have a heavy hand in what they wear. Sometimes in the design room, you know, they'll give them kind of options. You know, what would you wear? Like, what, you, what are you the most comfortable in? How do you see this character? Would they wear this watch? Would they wear this shoe? You know, what color blazer would you wear? And from there, they can kind of tailor down like the final selections. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure if Mark did that with Joaquin, but I kind of have a feeling that Joaquin probably had an opinion about what he wanted to wear. You know, it's interesting about Joker because it does have so many nominations that as listeners of the series know, it's come up quite a bit that uh, uh, a lot of the awards for which it's uh, being considered are technical awards, and so we've discussed it. And while I personally didn't enjoy the movie very much, it's very clear to me that all of the technical folks brought their A-game to this movie in the sense that 
there is no category that I have discussed on the show where it's not clear that the work specifically in that lane is exemplary. And you've reinforced that idea here with costume design yet again or off the Joker. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a very um, polarizing film for sure. Very mixed reviews. I think because I loved the, the production design and the costume so much that I, I could really appreciate it like, like purely on like aesthetic point of view. Um, and that just like super enlightened me. It made me happy. I, I didn't mind actual, the actual um, narrative either. It wasn't my favorite movie of the year, but I definitely enjoyed um, the aesthetics of that feature. And I thought, I thought, you know, they really just thought about everything, the way his makeup, you know, sat with his costume, even the way the color of the blood would fall in his lapel. I mean, I just thought it was really great. Well, let's move on to another one of our nominees, The Irishman, for which Sandy Powell and Christopher Peterson have been nominated. To start us off, it's obvious that one of the challenges of The Irishman would be covering these decades of filming and needing to do wardrobe decade by decade. But you bring a more sensitive eye to it. What did you notice? Well, I am a big fan of Sandy's. I, I think she's amazing. Last year, she did Mary Poppins. She did The Favorite. And I was a big fan of both of those in terms of the costumes. Thought, thought they were fantastic. And then this year, her doing The Irishman, I didn't actually realize that until later I, I saw it. I was like, oh, she co-designed that too. Um, and honestly, nothing stood out for me in terms of the costume design. Only I think the magnitude, really owning like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. I mean, that's, that's really hard. And especially for men, because men's fashion doesn't change um, as wildly as women's, you know, it's like the width, the width of their tie, the, you know, the width of their lapel, the height of their pants, and the, if it's a high, high waist, it's a low waist, you know what I mean? If it's a boxy shoulder, it's a double-breasted suit or a single. And I think, I know those things sound like simple, but to make it successful and, and creating the right, like the right, like tweeds and the right colors of the tie, I mean, all those things are really important. And you just have to believe it. The audience has to be like, oh, we're in the 60s now. Oh, we're in the 70s. And sometimes they don't always tell you that right away. So the viewer, you know, I look at costumes and I look at cars for me to know what year it is right away. Um, and I think that that's what they did successfully. You know, you didn't get distracted by anything. You just kind of believed it. And for the Irishman, it's really interesting because there's lots of talk about like de-aging De Niro and Joe Pesci um, since they had to cover so many decades from their young men to older. And I thought that was really interesting because when I watched it, I'm sure they had to think about and consider and how that corresponds to costumes. So maybe, you know, only showing their neck up above and not showing all their arms because that would be more work um, in, turn, in terms of like all the CG on their arms and their legs. Um, so I thought that was really interesting to like think about that and how that will affect costuming in the future. Because we're getting all these advances with technology, I'm, I'm, I have a feeling that we can keep actors longer and make them young again, make them old. Um, so the possibilities with that are really interesting. I don't want them to take away our job and make all the costumes like fake, but <laughs> you, I mean, you just don't, you don't know. I mean, I mean, look at Avatar, you know, the Avatar was that, you know, a costume designer did design that. And actually it was Maya's Rubio who also did Jojo Rabbit. She designed Avatar, which I think, is interesting because you did still have to have someone to do all the costumes. I know a lot of that was um, live action too, but I do wonder what her hand was in terms of like the rest of the movie that wasn't um, live action. Uh, but for the Irishman, yeah, I'm sure they had to go through lots of multiples just with all the stunts and, and a lot of the blood, a lot of people died. 
the stand-ins, you know, the photo, the photo doubles, and also just all the lead actors. So when you start dealing with period and then having to think of the multiples, that's, that's, it gets really expensive. You have to think smart. You really have to have a lot of conversations with the ADs, um, think about how it's shot. You know, just know the extent if it's VFX blood, if it's, you know, post blood, where they just add it later, or if it's real blood, they do it on set. That can save you time. It could also add money. It could save money. Uh, so, yeah, the Irishman, I just think, was, like, kind of prolific in terms of just, like, all the generations of costumes through the years and all over the country, too. Just thinking about, like, every city they kept bouncing around to and just, like, how did they dress? How did they dress then in the 70s? How did they dress, you know, in Chicago? How did they dress in New York? Because all of that is really different. And that also can sell where you are, the location. Like, oh, you know, they were really into this type of plaid then here. That was very blue collar then. That looks like a, that looks like a Chicago taxi driver. You know what I mean? It just, I think that would have been a lot of homework to do. And that was, it must have been, it probably was challenging. You know, I think our next film, Jojo Rabbit uh, from Myas C. Rubio, uh, is probably on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as scope, where we're working with a specific location, a specific time period. But what did you see in Jojo Rabbit? Oh, I definitely noticed the costumes in Jojo Rabbit in a good way. You know, they had a lot of the petite greens, a lot of the uniforms, but because they were children, she always like added like a pop of like bright yellow, long greens, you know, she had a lot of beautiful accents. I even noticed Scarlett Johansson's shoes. She had these really lovely like pops of color in her shoes. And uh, like spoiler, but you see them later in the movie, her shoes, and you don't see the rest of her. And I was kind of like, oh, like, oh, I noticed her shoes. And then I immediately knew which character it was. And, you know, you just kind of, things fall into place because certain things were really iconic, like her hat and her certain jacket. And I just thought the costumes were super lovely. She played with them in a really um, playful way for such a serious, you know, World War II, for such, for such serious content, it was very playful still because it was through a child's lens. And you did have a lot of minors, like in terms of children, and um, she still kept it really fun and playful. And with Elsa, when um, he finds um, the young girl hiding in his room, in like the attic, so to, so to speak, I thought her costume was super lovely too. You know, she had suspenders, she had like these really simple high-waisted pants, she had this button-down shirt, and she could only wear the same three items. She had a sweater that she would like interchange with it. Um, but that was just, you know, it had to be really specific. It had to be maybe something that she found. It could have been a boy's, you know, a boy's pair of pants, you know, trousers. It could have been like her old mom's sweater. And I just think all those like really specific pieces were just really thoughtful. And I, I really, really love the costumes in that movie too. I think you bring up an interesting challenge with the idea that it's not just meeting the time period, but the entire movie is through a child's eyes and, how they see that and what you do with those costumes. Yes, there's obviously the uh, very flamboyant outfit uh, towards the end of the movie that uh, some specific Nazis are wearing, but overall, I can just, again, see how that really furthers the story, these little elements that she's bringing to it. Yeah, it, it really just like the color palette on that movie, she was really good with color. When you're dealing with like a budget in terms of like, you know, it, it's the war, they don't have a lot of money. Um, they're not buying new clothes. So with the small amount of pieces that their wardrobe has, like, you know, they keep wearing the same jackets and hats and shoes, you know, they have to be specific. And also they don't always have to be like completely time period correct. It depends on what kind of film you're doing. And to help audiences acclimate 
to what they're watching. Sometimes either they'll do like maybe a modern palette with like time period silhouettes or they'll use modern fabrics um, and then they'll incorporate them into period accurate dresses. Um, so I think, I think that was really playful what she did in terms of the palette and mixing all of that. Next on our list is Little Women with costume design by Jacqueline Duran. Big, big fan, big, big fan of the movie, big, big fan of that screenplay, um, of the book, of everything. Um, you know, to have four sisters that are completely different, different ages, different goals in life, and to make them each seem like, oh, that they love this cloak, they love this dress, I thought it was so successful. Because it's really challenging when you have four girls around the same height, you know, long hair, and you just want to make them look different. You want to make them look like they live under the same roof, you know, they come from the same family, but what they're wearing is special to them. And I thought that this was a very successful um, example of that. If you haven't seen the movie, I strongly suggest seeing the movie. <laughs> um, definitely one of my favorites. I kind of hope she wins for costume design. I really don't know who's going to win, but I just, I just fell in love with everything. I just fell in love with everything because from all the fabrics to the laces to the trims that they picked, you know, even when their mom walks in and she just takes her, her cloak off and she just has like this long velvet ribbon that's just like this bright color and you're just, it's just everything. It's everything. You just look at it and I just, I just loved every piece. They were just so special, so special. And it was interesting too, because for Joe, you know, the lead character, um, you know, she's not as feminine. So like, how, how, what do you do with that? When you're, when you have to have, you know, full length skirts and, you know, petticoats and lace. And she added, she added elements, you know, that maybe a boy would wear like, you know, vests and jackets and um, scarves that kind of reminisce ties. Uh, I just thought it was all so smart and it seemed very much like Joe and whether or not they were period accurate or they didn't need to be. And maybe that was the point too, because she was a trailblazer. She wanted independence. She wanted to have security, job security and, you know, money and just be independent and just kind of go her own way. So everything about what she wore, I thought, emulated that character so well, as opposed to, you know, Amy and some of the more really, you know, feminine girls that wore like a lot of more pinks and, you know, pastels, as opposed to Joe wore a lot more jewel tones. She wore, she wore like darker, deeper colors, like reds and like deep purples and she didn't wear any lavenders or things like that. So I just thought that's a, that's a specific choice for the costume team. And then also when you create closets and you create characters that have these, like these aesthetic voices and in terms of fabric and costumes, you can walk into a room and you can already know like, Oh, that's Joe's line. That's Joe's, you know, rack of clothes over there. Oh, that's Amy's or, you know, and you just know because you know what kind of person they are. You know, she probably had more of like, the blazers and um, the shirt blouses and the other girls wore maybe more pink and lavender. And that's when it's successful is when you can actually just kind of like go through a room in a costume department and like know who is who. I'm not sure it's self-evident in the costumes how you do design them individually, not just what's going to fit each character or the actress involved, but that her actual character needs to be embodied in what she's wearing and that there's a whole nother level to it there that you obviously noticed in this and it sounds like it was very successful. Oh, without a doubt. And, and if people didn't notice it, then it also meant that it was successful because you just were probably engrossed in the film and you believed everything that you were watching and hanging on every word and line and just, you know, wanted to see who, who, ended, who ended up with who. 
Um, so that's successful too. And with costumes like this too, I think they really help the character get into like their headspace and who they are. And a lot of these costumes were so restricted, like restricting, right? Like, you know, they have to wear petticoats and things that maybe they can't always feel comfortable when they're eating or even going to the bathroom. But they're in this time period. They went back in time and they believe that they're these characters. And so do you as an audience. And there's so many more things like like layers, like they have gloves and they have hats and, um, you know, they have purses to match. They have, you know, specific jewelry or, you know, it, there's just so many more like elements as opposed to like a t-shirt and jeans. It's a harder, it's harder task too for the costume department. And I just, I thought that everything was super, super successful and uh, yeah, and I believed it. Well, let's turn our attention to the final nominee for costume design. That's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Arian Phillips. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was really fun in terms of costumes because it was, <laughs> it took place in Hollywood in terms of like they were on film sets. So you had like the real characters and then their, whoever they were portraying, which was super funny. It was funny to see like caricatures of 70s people that they, it was like, it was so meta, right? Like a movie in a movie, um, which I thought was super funny. And also they had to think about LA 70s and also European 70s. When Leonardo DiCaprio goes to Europe, the costumes that he wears and that his, his, his wife wears. So everything that they wear in Italy versus what they wear in LA. Um, because once again, that's very different. You know, 70s in Italy is different than 70s in LA. And I think they really nailed that. That's like a lot of research to figure out like what kind of, if they had more silks, if they were into more patterns. Um, color palette is so different all over the world in the same exact day and time. Uh, so I thought that was, that was really great. And, you know, and just like his staple leather jacket, you know, that was just like Leonardo DiCaprio. That's what he wore. And he's like turtlenecks and, and the, the jewelry and the rings. And I just, I think they, they really nailed the color palette. There were like a lot of yellows and browns. And Margaret Robbie's character was just so fun, I'm sure, to dress. You know, when you watch her on screen, you just like want to be her. You want to, you want to wear like the dresses and the sunglasses and I'm really excited to see what happens though in terms of like who votes for what because I don't know if people are going to get sentimental for like different periods or like what they're going to be most impressed with because there were a lot of period films this year and there's no one that was like harder necessarily. They're just all really different. I think it's a challenge in this category that a lot of the work that you described earlier on a film that's not period, it could involve just as much evocation of character and creation of mood and such, but lacking the period element, I think it's often overlooked. Yeah, and I do think, I think depending, that can be a shame um, because I think sometimes people just overlook things on screen and just think that it's easy. But really depending on the content, it's not. And, you know, you're just trying to always mold like real people and real characters and just make it seem believable. And, you know, having Brad Pitt as like the stuntman and having Leonardo DiCaprio as like the Hollywood actor in the movie one looks more a little more finessed and wealthy and one looks a little bit more average Joe and Red Pitt wears like a lot more denim, denim jeans, denim shirts, keeps it a little more casual, um, doesn't wear as much gold. And, and that's evident when you watch it. And then immediately when you watch it, you can kind of go, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has more money, so-and-so doesn't. And, and all that reads pretty well. Um, it was a good one too. Well, talking about how some films are overlooked, what came out in 2019 that perhaps did not make this list that caught your eye from a costume perspective? Overall, I was pretty happy with the list when I saw the, the final picks. 
And even when I was trying to vote and like, you know, who should get nominated, I just definitely wanted, you know, Little Women. I really liked Jojo Rabbit. I thought those were really successful. I really loved Mark Bridges' Joker. And the other two, the other two nominations too were also really strong. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, super great, super great. I don't think there's like a, an obvious like front runner for any of these, or, or maybe there isn't. I, I kind of don't notice them because I kind of fell in love with everything, <laughs> which I truly always do. I'm like, oh, well, I love that. And I love this, you know, and, you know, so-and-so, you know, made the most gorgeous dress in this movie and so-and-so were like the most impeccable shoes, you know, and the silhouette was fantastic. So I don't know. I was pretty happy with all these. I think, I think they might've been more nuanced, you know, when you watch like Little Women and you just, oh, it's time period. They all wear these big bustles and plaid dresses. But it's like, you know, like someone had to think about the exact tailoring and how many buttons and like how, how it hung on their neck and what, what purse and shawl they wore with that. There's a lot of coordinating. For contemporary, I think people just forget because everyone puts clothes on every day. So I think they immediately could just work in a wardrobe department. <laughs> but it just always kills me because I'm like, we think about this. We think about what they would wear, not what you would wear. You think about what they have money to like spend on. Like, could they afford that? Would they actually wear that? Do they like that color? Like you, you start creating like an um, encyclopedia of like who they are, like where they would shop, um, how they would dress. What do they wear after work? Even like what, what underwear would they wear? You know, it's funny, like when I started getting into this business and I think I started, I started doing a lot of commercials, you know, like Home Depot or McDonald's and, and I'd style these commercials and my mom would go, she'd go, I'm confused. Like, don't they just come wearing those clothes? And I, I just, I was just like, I just, I didn't even know what to say because I was, of course they don't. We tell them exactly what to wear. We're trying to sell either a product or a character or a mood or a feel. And you want it to just like, you want to just look at it and not think about it. You want it just to be believable. And I think sometimes when it's contemporary, like my mom believed on television when she's watching these commercials that they walked on set wearing this. No, they probably walked into the fitting wearing sweatpants and like flip-flops, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like we put them in something more specific, like, oh, well, a mom wouldn't wear that. You know, mom would wear this. I, I don't think people even realize how designed everything that you watch is whether it's a commercial or an ad or a print ad or, you know, something that pops up on your Facebook or your Instagram. And it's like, we're trying to sell you something, whether it's a product or a movie or a character or a script, we're trying to make you just believe it. And I think that's, that means it was successful. Like my mom um, didn't even, my mom didn't even realize. So I definitely like feel for contemporary design. I definitely think it's all hard, but you know, there's something to say about period too there is like something special in its own right. Well, we're trying to educate folks at large. It is the mission of this podcast about all the work that's uh, going on behind the scenes. Allison, thanks so much for sharing your insights. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And that's a wrap on our nominee episodes for season four. Listeners, I'd really like to know what you thought. You can email skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. If you're an iTunes user, you can also rate us. And if so inclined, leave a comment. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. You can follow us there. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. If you're listening soon after this episode is released, then enjoy the Oscars this weekend. I hope you've gained new insights. We've got one more surprise episode in the queue before we wrap up season four. 
but there will be a short break, probably 10 days or so, while we put it together. Hope you'll join us then.